0: Welcome, everyone, to the Full Dig Podcast. I am Pastor Jackie Parks, and I'm here with our resident theologian, Pastor Bruce Johnson. We are so excited to start this uh, series in Jeremiah as we dig into um, the book of Jeremiah and who um, Jeremiah was and what the book is trying to teach us as we move forward into, um, into what God has called us to do and who he has called us to be.
1: Well, good to be with you, Jackie. Thank you for being our guest host today on this podcast. So, Jackie, when you think about the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, what, what comes to mind? What do you remember about him? What uh, stirs in your imagination?
0: You know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a very um, positive book <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, from, from just a simple reading of it, it's, um, it can be a depressing book
1: a lot of doom and gloom in a Jeremiah. A lot
0: of doom Jeremiah. and gloom. Um, you wouldn't necessarily read uh, portions of Jeremiah at a wedding or at any sort of celebration necessarily.
1: <laughs> no, no, though we do have uh, one verse that's often quoted, uh, Jeremiah twenty-seven 11. We'll get into that uh, later on. Um, but I, I think today, as we do this overview of Jeremiah, we'll try to start with one chapter that explains a lot about uh, Jeremiah's ministry and how the book of Jeremiah came together. We'll look at some history, some important rulers and dates to keep in mind, and some memorable imagery and verses from Jeremiah, a little bit of archaeology, and we'll have a C.S. Lewis quote, as we often do. And Jackie, you also are bringing a quote for us. I am. Uh, I have
0: a quote from theologian uh, Christopher Wright, who writes a really great commentary on the book of Jeremiah from the series The Bible Speaks Today.
1: So a lot to look forward to. So what's been helpful for me when I think about the book of Jeremiah and the prophet Jeremiah is to look at Jeremiah chapter 36, because that really explains how we receive the book of Jeremiah in the form that we have it. So I thought I would read the first six verses of chapter 36. We can talk about that a little bit. And then, uh, Jackie, if you read the last six verses of chapter 36 and we can talk about that again. Sounds great. So this is how chapter 36 of the book of Jeremiah begins. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch son of Neriah, And while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I am not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. So it's really interesting. It, uh, Jeremiah was from a tribe of uh, priests and from a town full of priests. So he's a preacher's kid and he's restricted at some point. He can't even go to the Lord's temple, yeah, which, that's interesting. which is interesting, which uh, came as a result of some of the things that he was saying, uh, God's word about uh, destruction coming. And the uh, authorities in Jerusalem and in Judah did not like that at all. So they said, don't let Jeremiah come here and, with those bad words and war.
0: It kind of reminds me of what uh, what we read in the Gospels when they say a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown.
1: That's right. Uh, people all knew who Jeremiah was. Mm-hmm. And so this is exactly what happens. Um, Baruch uh, writes all of these prophecies that God had given to Jeremiah up to that point. He goes to the gate of the temple and he starts reading them as all the people come in to worship God. And... All the authorities there start to get nervous. They say, what do we do about this? Uh, uh, who, who hasn't heard this? We've got to hear this. And, and so finally they say, well, we've got to bring this to the king. And so one of the officials tells Baruch and Jeremiah, both you got to hide right now because we're going to br- bring this to the king. The king's not going to be happy. And they read it to the king. And the king ends up, uh, he's standing before a fire that's keeping um, his palace warm at that point. And after they read three or four lines at a time, he takes a little pin knife and he cuts that off and he throws that part of the scroll into the flames. He keeps on doing it till the entire scroll is burned up. So the king is not pleased.
0: To say the least.
1: To say the (laughs) least. So once you take up the story after that, Jackie, what happens there?
0: So from verse 27, after the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. Also, tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe from it both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them.
1: So the book of Jeremiah, as we have it now, is not the first draft. It's the second draft that's been put together of all Jeremiah's prophecies, plus other things that are added by Baruch the scribe, probably. So we have both prophecies and narrative histories mm-hmm. that give the background on some of these things. So as you read uh, Jeremiah, it's, it's a little confusing. I mean, mm-hmm. first couple times I read Jeremiah saying, wait a minute, there, didn't we already cover this? And he's going back again, and it, it yeah. didn't make a lot of sense. And uh, I think it becomes a nice echo of the chaos of the times Mm. in which Jeremiah lived. So having said that, there is a a structure to uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Again, it's not in chronological order. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 52 talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the kingdom of Judah. But you also have that retold not just in the last chapter of Jeremiah, but in the middle in chapters uh, 38 and 39. And then chapters 40 and 41 talk about after the destruction of Jerusalem. So it goes back Mm -hmm. and forth and back and forth a little bit. Having said that, you can think of Jeremiah as the first chapter being Jeremiah's call, the last chapter being kind of a postscript of what happens after what Jeremiah Mm -hmm. prophesied came to pass. Then you have three sections in the middle. Uh, Chapters 2 through 15 are the divine judgment that God is pronouncing against Judah and Jerusalem because the people's uh, idolatry. Mm -hmm. often talked about in terms of uh, adultery, uses that uh, symbol to talk about that. And then you have a middle section, chapters 26 through 45, about uh, events in the life of Jeremiah. And then uh, the third and final section, chapters 46 through 51, Jeremiah's prophecies concerning the nations uh, besides Judah. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the middle section there's a book of hope the book of Mm. consolation which is chapters 31 32 and 35 hope about the return of god's people to their land ancestral land that would happen 70 years later Mm. and which did happen seventy years later and the looking beyond that to god's ultimate answer which is the messiah Mm. the promised messiah who will come so confusing. There is some structure, but you got to keep in mind now, where are we in, in this whole thing? Um, having said that there, are great images, mm-hmm. uh, that Jeremiah uses great to memorable verses. And so I've picked a few of those for us to look at and, um, we'll go back and forth. Uh, do you want to read the first one? Sure. Okay.
0: This comes from Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. My people have committed two sins They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot
1: hold water. So do you have much experience with cisterns?
0: I don't. Can you tell us a little bit about cisterns? So cistern
1: is a place where you hold water. It's a water storage area. So you dig a hole in bedrock and you line that with plaster and that allows you to store water. Mm. So it's not a source of water, but a storage area. And so God is saying... Look, you rejected me. I'm the spring. I'm the real source of living water. But you just want a cistern. And the cistern you chose is broken. It it will leak the water you're trying to hold. So great imagery there. Another place where Jeremiah uses vivid imagery is in chapter 6, verse 1, which reads, Flee for safety, people of Benjamin. Flee from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet into Koa raises signal over beth a for disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. You always conquer Jerusalem from the north, just the way that it's situated. You have mm-hmm. natural defenses on the uh, all the other sides. So it makes sense when he says, you have a warning from the north. But uh, one of the towns he mentions there, which is uh, near Bethlehem, is Tekoa. Tekoa means trumpet. And so... Sound the trumpet in Tacoa When you read it in Hebrew, is trumpet the trumpet and trumpet? So very uh, vivid imagery he uses in different places.
0: It's always so nice when you can um, under when you have someone like you that knows Hebrew and you can see kind of the the creativity in the author. He's,
1: he's very creative, yeah. very very vivid in his imagery. Yeah.
0: Uh, The next, uh, the next imagery is uh, from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses nine to 10. And it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve.
1: I've always loved those verses of Jeremiah mm. first uh, you know, the heart is deceitful, you know, heart wants what it wants, but yep. it doesn't always guide us well. Mm-hmm. And who can understand even our own hearts? And the answer is, well, the Lord understands.
0: Yeah. There's so much hope in that, isn't there? There is. Yeah, is.
1: I've always loved that. And then the very famous verse uh, I said it was from Jeremiah chapter 27. It's actually Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Those very observant podcast Listeners have probably already figured that out. But that's the verse that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Very encouraging words. You know, you go into most Christian bookstores, you can find some plaque or keychain that has that verse on it. You think, Oh, this is great this will be my verse I claim for my life.
0: I'm pretty sure I had that verse written on a note card in my locker when I was growing up.
1: (laughs) And uh, it's a great verse to have a note card in your locker or to have hanging on your wall. But we need to understand the context of this. Mm. Um, There is hope, but Jeremiah really had a hard time again and again telling people, you know, you've messed up and there's gonna be consequences. And his life was not an easy life. You know, he was arrested at different points, banned mm-hmm. from the temple, which we mm-hmm. already talked about. Um, and then at the end of his life, he's kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a, lot, a lot of bad stuff happened we to Jeremiah. May not,
0: we may not call that prospering in the same way. It reminds me of the words of, of Christ when he says, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. Yes, we would maybe translate that a little bit differently in our day and age of what life to the fullest means. But
1: right. Because we've gotten a, uh, a skewed yeah. image of what full life is right. or what the good life is. Yeah. The so good,
0: the plans to prosper you.
1: Right. We think it's to have more stuff. Right. And exactly. That, that's not what God means. <laughs>
0: that's not what God means. No.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, if you live through, something that's very scary a medical crisis Mm. you know something happens to your kids or your spouse or yourself or your parents and you begin wondering about well what's really important and it's relationships Mm -hmm. uh and um god can prosper our relationships with other people and with uh Mm. god himself uh, in great and deep ways and give us a rich and full life though there'll be a a lot of unexpected twists and turns in that
0: yeah And the final, uh, the final section of Jeremiah comes from, um, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. And it said, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my
1: people a great description of Mm -hmm. the new covenant that god is going to bring of course for us we immediately identify that well that's what god has done in jesus right yeah Yeah. it's wonderful Well, let's talk a little bit about the historical setting of jeremiah you can think of jeremiah uh, as he arrives as he's a young man the great gorilla in the room of the near east is the kingdom of assyria it had been around for more than a century, it was the big powerhouse. And Assyria is kind of in a power struggle with Egypt, which had long been a a powerful um, country. And in between the two is the Jewish people, Mm -hmm. the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah. And Assyria had conquered the northern tribes of Israel in 721 BC. And then uh, later on, Jeremiah is born, he comes onto the scene Assyria is still a powerhouse, and when God begins to speak through Jeremiah, the words are that there's another powerhouse that's coming, and that's Babylon, and uh, God will use Babylon as an instrument of judgment against his people, and that in fact happens, um, Babylon ascends into power, Assyria is conquered, and then Egypt is diminished more and more, Uh, so that's kind of the historical Mm -hmm. setting. When I teach about the Old Testament, I often say, well, there's four dates that are good to remember uh, about the Old Testament, good dates right in the back of your Bible. And those four dates are 2000 BC, 1000 BC, 721 BC, and 586 BC. Mm -hmm. Because if you know those four dates, you can probably take most of the Old Testament and kind of say, okay, I know where that is in relation to to those four dates. So uh, 2000 BC, is about the time that Abraham, the patriarch, lived. 1000 BC is about the time of King David, the first of the kings of the united monarchy of Israel and Judah. 721 is when the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And 586 BC is when Babylon conquers Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and the people go into exile. So Jeremiah relates to that last date, 586 BC. You know, sometimes you read in um, different Bible commentaries, sometimes they use an alternate date, 587 BC, instead of 586. Sometimes you read the alternate day, 722 instead of 721. Don't worry about that. <laughs> for, for all practical purposes, 721, the fall of the Northern Kingdom, and 720, yeah. uh, 586, the fall of the Southern Kingdom.
0: I think it's also important always to root um, to remember these dates, um, to remember that we, that this is part of redemptive history, that these aren't, you know, this isn't just a, a fictional tale of God's work in the world as if we're watching a movie that someone made up, right? These are actual dates within history that we can reflect back on. God was at work Through his people in actual time and space. These are, this doesn't need to be over spiritualized as a fictional tale of God's work. These were actual times and people that were in history at which, and in which we can see God's hand um, at work in their lives and throughout. Throughout those times, and even through nations, and the use of nations, in order to bring his his words to fulfillment, his prophecies to
1: fulfillment. And the more that we grasp that that God worked with real people in Bible times, the easier it is for us to believe that God can work with real people in our own day and
0: age. Amen. Yeah. Uh,
1: that God can work through you and me. So, beside those four dates, the the there are seven kings that uh, come up in the book of Jeremiah as you read that. Uh, two of them are pagan kings and uh, five of them are Jewish kings, the last five Jewish kings uh, before Jerusalem is destroyed. So the two pagan kings to uh, keep in mind are Pharaoh Necho, that's Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt. He reigned from uh, 610 to 595 B.C., that was in the 26th dynasty for those Egypt fans, Egyptology fans out there. That was the last um, dynasty that had a, a native Egyptian rule it before Egypt mm-hmm. is conquered by the Persians. And you get to Darius and Cyrus and all of those Persian leaders. And then the other uh, pagan king that's mentioned in Jeremiah is Nebuchadnezzar, that's Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon. He rules from 605 to 562 BC. Uh, he's the one that conquers Jerusalem. So the five Jewish kings begin with King Josiah, and then uh, the last uh, four kings after him. Three of them are his sons, and one of them is his grandson, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. So uh, Josiah reigns for thirty-one years. He's uh, listed as one of the good kings. Mm-hmm. And then the last four kings are all listed as bad kings (laughs) meaning uh they did not support uh the worship of uh, god and god alone and uh, led the people astray so josiah dies in a battle where he's uh, called in to fight as people are trying to fend pharaoh Neco that's marching through the land so he goes up to join pharaoh Neco in battle and loses and dies so uh, very sad he was an yeah. important king uh, he was very young when he became king
0: yeah just eight years old
1: just eight years old he took over uh his uh, the queen mother wanted to kill him the queen mother had been uh the daughter of uh the evil king ahab and evil queen jezebel of the northern kingdom so not the person you want as your grandmother no. or mm-hmm. uh queen mother yeah. so they had to hide josiah for a while and he's finally brought out and made king very good king, a lot of religious reform, but he dies. Mm. And after he dies, his son Jehoihaz rules for only three months. And then Pharaoh Necho, that had killed his father, removes the king from power and puts in his brother to reign. Uh, Jehoiah who reigns for 11 years. Now this is right at the time when you have a change in what's going on in Assyria. You have the rise of one of the provinces of Assyria, Babylon, that breaks away and becomes its own kingdom. And uh, they say, okay, we're the big gorilla in the Near East now and we'll take over and uh, Jehoiakim, you'll become a vassal king for us, which happens for three years and then he rebels and then he dies. And then uh, his son Jehoiakim takes over just for three months and then he's replaced by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, three months, 11 years, then another three months, uh, Jehoiakim, and then he's replaced by the last king Judah, Zedekiah. So he's installed by Nebuchadnezzar, and after a while he does the same mistake as his predecessor, he says, well, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar because Egypt will come to my rescue. Egypt does Mm -hmm. not come to his rescue. In fact, there's a verse in 2 Kings 24 that says, the king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates river. In other words, that was really stupid. <laughs> I believe Pharaoh's going to uh, save your behind on this. It's, that did not happen. Uh, Zedekiah is um, captured. Um, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Zedekiah's eyes are, are gouged out and he's taken his prisoner to Babylon. So very very Brilliant. tragic end for that king.
0: You mentioned something with Jehoiakim that he was a, a vassal king to the Babylonian king. Can you explain what a vassal king is?
1: So that means you, you're the head of your country, but your country gives tribute to another country. Okay. So, uh, so you kind if, of
0: belong to a different country.
1: Yeah. You're you're kind of like an uh, underling king. Yeah, got you, it. You've okay. got a ruler of you. So that's what it means. Um, you have that authority over you and you have to give tribute. Okay. Paid taxes, in other words, yeah. So we often on the Full Dig podcast have a bit of archaeology. Yeah. And so I've chosen something that will help us really uh, do what you were emphasizing, Jackie, a bit ago about this. These happened in real history, in time mm-hmm. and space. So we have arrowheads, Babylonian arrowheads from the time of uh, the conquest of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Well. And these are all um, arrowheads that were found in a couple different digs, the City of David dig, the uh, Temple Sifting Project dig, and a very recent dig that's uh, going on with the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. They came up with another of these uh, Babylon arrowheads just in 2019 uh, in uh, a dig on um, what's called Mount Zion where I lived when I lived in Jerusalem. So these are all bronze. They're trifoiled uh, arrowheads. Uh, uh, stitho uh, Iranian arrowheads are sometimes called. They're aerodynamic, designed for maximum damage. A solid triangular point leads into the arrow's target. Was followed by three blades, inhibiting wound closure and increasing blood loss. And rather than a tang that we are used to in um, Native American arrowheads, uh, it has uh, a a little um, notch so the arrowhead shaft can fit into a socket. And that gives an increased chance of breaking off of the arrowhead when it's in somebody's body, that increasing the likelihood that they'll die. So, you know, the technology of the day, very, very brutal. So brutal. And the Babylonians used to gather up the arrowheads uh, at the end of the battle to be reused because if they're not really tied on they come off pretty easily after they've been fired but there are some that um, they weren't able to collect and that's why you have them from archeological digs. So uh, a reminder to us in these Babylonian airheads, this really happened. People really died and suffered. Uh, all the prophecies, the, all the warnings from God through Jeremiah that um, there would be consequences for their idolatry and for their social injustice for the way they were treating the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it all came to pass. And there are always consequences. Yeah. In fact, uh, we have some description of consequences in our eco-confessional standards from the Heidelberg Catechism, where it talks about, yes, there are always consequences for actions. And, and we have to do something about that. And God has to do something about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we, sometimes we get uh, hung up a little bit on understanding God's consequences the, the justice and the grace the truth and the grace that that is present um but we actually want justice we we're, do we're built for that we're we're it is it is instilled in us because we are made in the image of god that we want to see justice done
1: yes and sometimes we want to see justice for our enemies and mercy for ourselves
0: yes always yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's always good to keep that in mind that, that when we sometimes struggle as we do with with understanding who God is and his purposes in the world that we are we're made for justice and we desire to see um, God's justice in the world um, out of out of his mercy it is his merciful love from which his justice flows
1: I often express it in terms of fairness you know we, we expect things to be fair mm. you know if I'm if I have a business dealing expect it to be fair yeah. fair for both sides yeah. And when it isn't, we said, well, that should be that way. It's not fair. It's not just. Yeah. So why don't you read uh, this from the Heidelberg Catechism. Why don't you read the question uh, 10 and question 11 and their Mm -hmm. answers.
0: Okay. So question 10 from the Heidelberg Catechism says, will God let humanity get by with such disobedience and rebellion? The answer, certainly not. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, both against our inborn sinfulness and our actual sins. He will punish them according to his righteous judgment in time and in eternity, as he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. From Galatians 3.10. And question 11. But is not God also merciful? Answer. God is indeed merciful and gracious, but he is also righteous. It is his righteousness which requires that sin committed against the supreme majesty of God be punished with extreme, that is, with eternal punishment of body and soul.
1: So again, that balance between justice and mercy of God and how we keep those two Mm -hmm. together. Uh, The next two questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 12 says because we have deserved temporal and eternal punishment by the righteous judgment of God, how may we escape this punishment, come again to grace and be reconciled to God? Pretty good question. Mm -hmm. And the answer is God wills that his righteousness be satisfied. Therefore payment in full must be made to his righteousness, either by ourselves or by another question 13. Can we make this payment ourselves? The answer by no means on contrary, we increase our debt each day. Mm. So a little bit of hope and then but there's a problem <laughs> with this So what, what's the solution?
0: Here is the answer. Question 14 says can any creature make the payment for us? Answer: no one. First of all God does not want to punish any other creature for humanity's debt. Moreover, no creature can bear the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. So, what is the solution? Question 15. Then, what kind of mediator and redeemer must we seek? And the answer one who is a true and righteous human and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time a true God.
1: And who do they have in mind when they say that? Jesus. The true God and <laughs> true man, yeah. So it really sets it up, says, you know, this is a real problem, but God has a solution and let's yeah. talk about that and why that's important. Well, uh, in the we have this ha- habit in the Fold Big Dig podcast of having a C.S. Lewis quote and a quote from Reform Heritage. So I'm bringing a C.S. Lewis quote about sorrow. Hmm. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, the prophet that's acquainted with sorrow. And so these are words about uh, C.S. Lewis as the sorrow he had after uh, C.S. Lewis's wife passed away. Lewis writes, I thought I could describe a state, make a map of sorrow. Sorrow, however, turns out to be not a state, but a process. It needs not a map, but a history. And if I don't stop writing that history at some quite arbitrary point, there's no reason why I should ever stop. There is something new to be chronicled every day. Grief is like a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. Mm.
0: And I am deviating just a little bit from the norm of our Reformed Heritage quote. And well,
1: you are our guest host. I am guest. You have that authority to to deviate.
0: I guess. Um, And I'm going to share a quote from, uh, like I said, the. A commentary on the book of Jeremiah from a a modern, still alive uh, theologian named Christopher Wright out of the UK. Um, And he's speaking a little bit about an overview of the context um, and the world in which Jeremiah speaks. And he says, What then was the state of the world into which Jeremiah was called to speak for God in the year 627 BC? For people who had lived through the previous decades, it must have seemed like an enormous transition. Nationally, they were in the throes of a royal reformation that seemed to turn upside down the practices of a half a century. The changes would have impacted the priestly family of Jeremiah in his home village of Anathoth and were probably not popular. Politically, there was a resurgence of nationalism and a drive for independence from Assyria, reminiscent of the heyday of Hezekiah, but perhaps with greater hope of success now that Assyria was beginning to crumble. And internationally, that very crumbling of the empire that had ruled the region for 150 years must have produced anxieties as to what reconfiguration of nations, alliances, and empires might emerge from the rubble. It was the end of an era with some hopes for judah and considerable unease about the rest of the world and god's answer a nervous youth who thought he couldn't speak god is good at that kind of surprise centuries earlier god's answer had been a nervous octogenarian who also thought he couldn't speak Yet both of them ended up with God's words in their mouths. And centuries later, God's final answer in a world creaking under a far greater empire than Assyria or Babylon would be a baby. God's word become flesh.
1: I love that. I love the transition between Jeremiah as a youth uh, who doesn't think he can speak, Moses as an old man, octogenarian. Who thinks he's not the right person, mm-hmm. and then uh, God's ultimate answer in you know, a little baby, yeah, in Bethlehem,
0: and just the the way that he writes it in saying, you know, God's words through Moses and God's words through Jeremiah, and then God's final word through His Son.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful, and uh, he mentions uh, the hometown of Jeremiah. Anathoth. We'll save discussion of Anathoth till our next podcast. Oh
0: man, I love I love that little. Um,
1: the little teaser the there. The
0: little teaser, yeah. That's, that's right. The word, yeah.
1: And uh, why uh, Anathoth is important in, in Bible history. Great. Well, Jackie, I want to thank you for being our guest host. And I have a little present for you. <gasps> I have a pen knife to commemorate the pen knife that was used by the thank king you. to cut up the book of Jeremiah. And so poor Baruch has to do the whole thing all over again.
0: Poor Baruch. But also, you know, that we didn't talk about this, the perseverance and the tenacity of Jeremiah to... Just write it to do it all over again. That's right. That takes so much confidence in who God is and what uh, the calling that God had put on His life and the words that He was called to speak.
1: Exactly. Well, uh, Jackie, do you want to close in prayer for us today?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Father, we're grateful that you have uh, preserved and given us these words to form us and shape us, to give us hope, to remind us that you are still at work in us and among us and through us. Father, may we be diligent studiers of your word. May your word transform us, that we may look more like your son, that we may join you in your mission of making all things new. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Jackie.
0: Thanks for having me.